we were ignore, and I say we to be nice, folks in charge were not paying attention to the fact that what needed to happen is to unequivocally, not just disavow, but dismantle the system on which this country was built. People are reluctant to do that because these, the way that those stories were written and not by people who look like me, the way that those stories were written, there is such a level of heroism attached to what, were, what, is, what was often brutality, genocide. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. Hope everybody is doing good. What's up? So give me a like or thumbs up if you can see this. And I'm super pumped because this is what I'm doing. You don't even need to look at my face. This is what we're doing. Uh, We are passing the mic. We're passing the mic every single morning at 9 a.m. Eastern and highlighting meaningful stories. That's the goal in workplace, in sports, in nonprofit, in entrepreneurship. I just want to do this. Um, I think there's a lot to learn for me personally. So quite honestly, it is a personal uh, thing. And we'll, we'll jump into that, why it's more of a personal in a second. And I want to just uh, invite our first guest, Nikki. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well, Sangram. How are you? I am fantastic. I'm great. I'm uh, super grateful. So before we hop in, let's make the confession why we're here. And I will be the first <laughs> to go ahead and say that. And then you, you, uh, I will. I should have gotten your feedback on that. I created an opening statement for me uh, because I wanted to make sure that I do it the best way I can to to represent uh, what I am. So uh, last week, uh, with everything going on, I put on a a very, in my view, a, a very much like, oh yeah, everything should be fine. Like let's just be hope, happiness, and be positive, which is that's who I am. And Nikki, who knew me, she and I have done podcasts before, um, called me out. And rightly so, because I think I wasn't thinking deep enough. I wasn't going deep enough. I wasn't, uh, I was actually taking it very lightly and just as another day. And through that, Nikki and I had a call and I'm grateful for that conversation. And that led me to like asking Nikki, the, probably the question that I should be asking more, what should I do? And, and I think Nikki challenged me to say, well, why don't you use your platform and reach to talk about stories of people who are doing incredible work in their professional life and are fighting this fight every day and talk about recommendations, talk about stories, talk about things that can be done in the, in the most, most practical way out there uh, in the world today. So, so that's the story. I don't know, Nikki, did I forget anything on that? No, no, that's uh, that's pretty much what happened. You and, and here's the thing. Here's what I wanted to say about that uh, exchange in particular is through this experience, especially with respect to, you know, being a content creator, I have had to figure out some sort of balance between, as you mentioned, right, this I'm naturally a smiling, positive person. Right. So between that and my my inclination to look for a silver lining in situations and 
on making sure that I am talking about these issues in a way that's, you know, with, with a level of seriousness that they deserve. And so even when I, when I read your, your post, I was even at that point, super empathetic to, okay, I understand why Sangram, Sangram in particular (laughs) would take this angle, but I felt a responsibility because I, if, if I've had a conversation with you and I think, you know, we vibe, you're a good person. I, I feel a responsibility to help you out and, yeah. and be like, Hey, in, instead of, you know, writing you off instead yeah. of assuming that he must just not care. I yeah. took the, the thought of, okay, these are, this is the teaching moment. And so that's what it became. And that's what brought us here. That is awesome. So, all right, here's my opening statement and I'm going to let, then I'm going to introduce you and then we get into like just questions. And as people are jumping in, uh, type in your questions. This is about passing the mic. This is about asking questions. This is about learning. So here's my opening question, uh, opening statement. I wrote it out this morning. So you're going to laugh at some of that, but you know, hopefully there will be some seriousness uh, as you should expect. Uh, I'm, I'm neither white nor black. So I don't pretend to fully or even partially comprehend what it means to be an African-American, but I'm a person, I'm a human, I'm an entrepreneur and a community builder. So I believe it is my duty to understand what is going on and why. It is my duty to learn where my bias lies and how to overcome it. It is my duty to be part of the solution and bring hope to the world where trust, safety and care become common values for everyone. So I believe it is my duty to allow myself to learn, grow, and to tell a different story of unity, love, and grace, not race, uh, to our children and grandchildren. So that's my opening statement. That was sweet, Sangram. I- <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait a minute, like, is, where is, what, what do I need to learn? Because this is a learning moment. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I want this to be, and for hopefully others, like let it, let this be a learning moment. So uh, Nikki, you and I have known each other for probably at least a couple of years. Uh, mm-hmm. sweet, fish, sweet fish and podcasting and all that. You have become gone out and become more extraordinaire on marketing and sales. So this is for all the professional uh, world. So tell your story. Like what are you? What you know? What's what's going on? What is what are you doing in the work world today? And then we'll back up into the beginning story, the upbringing, the, the things that work that we should be thinking about and taking things seriously. Um, I, as a, as a founder, as a hiring manager, I want to know what do I need to do to hire better? Um, and, and things that I don't even think my biases are clearly there and I don't want to pretend that they're not there, but I'm not. So I need to be intentional about certain things that I'm, that I probably am not paid too much attention to. So we'll get into that. So tell your story. What are you doing lately? What's your uh, the biggest uh, opportunity that you're going after right now? It's a really exciting time for me, um, and it it had begun to be a really about you know six months ago, and then has just sort of picked up here in the last uh, month. So, um, I I had been a salesperson for you know more than ten years. I I got my first sales job. I I went. I accompanied a friend of mine to go buy a car. And, uh, <laughs> the salesman, you know, he just had this veneer and he kind of wasn't listening to her and I was heckling him because of it. 
And, and uh, so he didn't, he wasn't able to sell her a car. And so she didn't walk out with a car, but I walked out with a job offer. This guy's boss was like, um, I think you got something. Oh, wow. Good. Yeah. So you got, you got a job offer from the way you actually bought something or yeah or just, just to right process it. exactly that it was like it was it was talking to strangers it was understanding or having this empathy for the disconnect that existed between that salesperson and uh his his buyer and then you know understanding how to cut through and and make a connection or at least in that case understanding that that's what needed to happen so i did that for a while I, like i said I'd, I'd been a salesperson had the the fortune of working for my first b2b your sales job was <clears throat> working for Scott Lee at Outbound Engine. Another happenstance thing that involved a car dealership for me. <laughs> I, you know, I was I was selling cars again, and uh, a gentleman named Adam Moreno came onto my car lot. And in the process of me selling him a car, um, he was like, "So you're here. You're working 12-hour Saturdays. You know, you shared with me that beyond those 12-hour Saturdays, every Saturday." Uh, the, the hours of this job take you away from your family. I was living within walking distance from this job and pretty much living at this job. And I was good at it. And the job itself was fun, but it, that aspect of it was not. So he's like, you should be my boss. He's, he, you know, he's, he's a nice guy. His name's Scott Lee. So anyway, there, that's, there begins my, <laughs> my entry into B2B. <clears throat> and that's when I started to really think about prospecting and what the power of the SDR role really is, right? Because that function sits in between marketing and sales, there is just a real opportunity there to, you know, actively align those two functions and for those individuals to lead and contribute to the organization on up. Um, just because they're, they're sort of learning these dual functions. But it, it isn't often spoken about or treated that way or invested in um, to a degree that uh, that considers that fact. Yeah. So so that's when as I started to get more senior in my career and I start to think about, hey, how, how can I affect and impact sales culture for the good? Mm. You know, and and where where's my experience and where's my heart in, in the SDR role just became that. And so that's when I started putting out this content around um, SDRs and met. Josh Roth and Kyle Coleman and Nista and Tom Bogard. And that's when we formed SDR. I know that was kind of the long version, but that's yeah. what I've been up to. And I, I left out a couple of marketing things, but they'll come up here in a minute. What, what's interesting is I always looked at you as a marketer. Yeah. Because remember, we did the podcasting thing and we talked mm -hmm. about the marketing. And I wonder how much of that, how, for you to be a successful salesperson, just talking about the profession of sales for a second is mm -hmm. how much you need to understand about marketing and vice versa. Yes. <laughs> you have to understand. I think, again, this is one of the things that I had begun to write about when I started to really think about what gave me a hard time as a, as an SDR. Why wasn't I in at the times that I was not as successful as I wanted to be? Why? And it all came down to a lack of understanding of sort of basic demand gen yeah. and basic content marketing. So, so not knowing where your leads come from in, in the life of an SDR or BDR means not knowing why you're calling, who you're calling and why you're calling them then. But the job of, you know, the marketing department is to produce these MQLs, right? To send you yeah. the people who you're, the names of people who you're calling. So the greater understanding you have 
of what marketing is doing and why the greater the greater sense of purpose you have in yeah. in this role as an SDR. So it just kind of came organically from me searching that out, and then I got this opportunity at at Sweetfish in hosting B two B growth, where yeah, I was occupying this. I was I was executing content marketing, right? But I was in a sales function at that job. So I just, I was doing both naturally. And once I got a taste of the power of that, there was no turning back. And I think that your, your book hints at that, right? When you talk about, you know, the evolution of what was ABM and how, wait a minute, this is just B2B. I think it's really smart. You didn't say this is B2B marketing. I think what the, what the book and what a lot of the philosophy that you put out captures very, very, you know, astutely is, is that, you know, this alignment that we're we're looking for can happen very organically if we start to understand that this is just the most efficient way for a go-to-market, you know, or revenue team to function in a B2B environment. And so I was doing that every day at Sweetfish. And yeah. then when I, that's how I met Latney, Latney Conan over at Sixth Sense and uh, was doing as the social marketer there. Uh, just even sort of firmed up all of those beliefs that I had about what you could do from a content and sort of sales development function. So I ended up working closely with their BDR team to figure out at, at this top of the funnel, you know, social marketing function, how can I impact pipeline and, and relationships? And so I started to think about, well, who, which of our customers are on Twitter, which are there, are there, Folks that we're reaching out to who the BDRs are prospecting that, you know, who, whose online presence I'm, I'm acquainted with, right? So are there people who uh, some BDR has been emailing and not getting a response that if I were to just interact with some content that they, you know, had on Twitter or on LinkedIn could warm that up for that team, right? Yeah. So how can I be sort of a, a pre-SDR for the, the BDRs? from this uh, social function. And I was able to impact uh, pipeline. I was able to, to increase our re- the sort of revenue metrics versus just a lot of the awareness metrics from that role. And as I said, there really just isn't any turning back. So um, cut to now, as I'm building out the, the SDR function uh, in my current role, it is this, it's organically both sales development and content marketing at the same time, because I just don't think that there's a more effective way um, yeah. or, or a quicker way to get to that goal of building these relationships that turn into revenue. Uh, I mean, I, I love that. I love that because if you remember one of the things, and thank you for the shout out in the book, and this is the fun part of Premier, right? Like um, Amber, who is kind of literally saying, hey, love it, you know, pre-SDR for BDR, uh, shout out for the book. Uh, we talked about much, so thanks for that. Uh, and there are a lot of questions. So Robert, Amber, Amy, good to get to see you as well. Courtney from Atlanta. So it's it's really awesome to actually see all of all of the folks from all over the place um, coming in and joining. Uh, and let's just get into the topic of it. So before we get into well, what's now, what's at work today, because that's one area that I really want to dig in. And I know you have an opinion. I saw your post over the weekend around like, well, this is what people say and they don't even know what they're saying and there's a hint of this microaggressions that are happening mm-hmm. all around us and mm-hmm. and it does take a toll um, and it does create this starts start creating that wave tell the story as comfortable as you are with of your upbringing what happened 20 years ago the conversation you had with your 11 year old 
because that that conversation that we had three days ago or four days ago was probably one of the most single moving moments for me in in this week and a half to realize the how deep this conversation really is. Mm. So I'm I'm going to date myself here, but I think it's important <laughs> that you know. Yeah. So um, I'm going to prioritize this over my vanity. Uh, <laughs> I before a 24-hour news cycle, right? When when some major event happened, the world watched, and we kind of all experienced these things at the same time. And one of my first memories of that was. Um, and I don't even think I could discuss this one with you, but was uh, Rodney King. Mm. So Rodney King being beaten within inches of his life and then those officers responsible being ultimately acquitted. And just remembering what that unrest looked like, remembering, you know, how my parents reacted, the, particularly my father, who um, was a member of the U.S. Army, he was military, just the the profound sadness, and in the case of my father, anger, justifiably so, at that situation, and, and having that be part of my social, socialization as a, as a little Black girl was, you know, me having my eyes opened for, for one of the first times ever to the fact that on a large scale, Black people face these kinds of injustices. Because um, I don't know that I understood that before. I understood at the interpersonal level, I think I was probably five years old the first time I got called the N-word. But, you know, I didn't understand it on this scale. And so I still took sort of sort of the angle that, that you took, right? I can, you know, this this will make me angry or, but that just is too hard. So I'll focus on, you know, things that make me feel good and building relationships and, and being a bridge. And then, you know, that, that was in 92, and then in 1999, uh, in New York, there was a case of mistaken identity and the NYPD, well, at least this was their, their excuse, right? That has not been substantiated, but the, the NYPD fired 40 bullets at a gentleman named Amado Diallo. 21 of those bullets struck him and they took his life. And those cops too were acquitted. And that happened in 1999. 1999 is also the year that I gave birth to my son. I was 17 years old. And at that time, there's no way that this type of thing will still be happening when my son is that age, right? It will be, everything will be better by then because it just has to be, right? We're on our way, right? Yeah. That's, those are the things I was, I was thinking. And, you know, I'm, I'm seeing these things happen, not even just these instances, instances of police brutality where where unarmed black people are being killed, um, but just widespread anti-black sentiment. And then you you couple that with experiences I'm having at school, experiences I'm having at work where I'm constantly being othered and reminded of this fact that I'm I'm not, you know, wanted or be- or or I don't belong. And so there's there's already this existing backdrop that is to to the events surrounding George Floyd's murder. And that is what hit me the hardest when I listened to him beg for his life and call for his mother. Because I, it took me back to that place where it's 99, Diallo's murderers were not brought to justice. And I had all of this hope. And 20 years later, 
with a younger son, a different son, we're having to have this same conversation. And so, you know, I had not watched the video. I think I was one of the the later folks to, to come to that because again, like you and I talked about, I try really hard to protect positivity in my mind and in my heart. But my son had asked me, I mean, why are people angry and why are you sad? And I felt like there wasn't, there weren't any words that I could communicate to him that would fully illustrate exactly why I was sad and angry and why he was seeing this rage. So he, I invited him to sit next to me and we watched the video and Lennox still plays with action figures and watches cartoons. So he's on the innocent side of the spectrum when it comes to how quickly kids grow up. And I just saw so much of the innocence drain from his face. And I, I cried the, just the raw agonizing cry of a mother who has lost her son, because that is what it felt like. That is what I identified with when I watched that video. And so then I had to turn to Linux and say, you know, I wasn't able to fix it so that it could be different for you. So now we have to talk about the fact that because of the color of your skin, people might perceive you as a threat more so than they would your counterparts. And when people perceive you as a threat, it's dangerous because this is the way that they might treat you. And you have to understand that. And I know he doesn't understand that. He doesn't. And it's not fair that he has to understand that. So the gravity of that situation and which I'm still, as you can see, (laughs) dealing with, you know, is at, at the core, at the heart of a lot of my reaction to this when like, I don't, this is not just, you know, your, your in-laws posted something awkward on Facebook and now you're in an argument with them for me, right? These exchanges I'm having on LinkedIn with people, these conversations I'm having agreeing to do things like what you and I are doing right now. It is out of a sense of feeling a real responsibility so that I'm not having that same conversation with my grandson. Yeah. Yeah. 20 years from now. Thank you for sharing that. And I can only imagine how hard it is to share that 20 years ago and then with your 11-year-old and going through that. I was watching uh, as part of my time to learn, um, and I do believe it is, it, is, it, is it is up to me and everyone out there. There's all this information out there. Like You just need to go learn, educate yourself. Like, and I was listening to this, um, like a few videos where um, they're talking about like there that there is a clear path. There was a clear path at some point in the in, towards the late '90s, which is really interesting. The timing of this, where they said, "Well, look, it is, it is, it is. It starts in school, and it leads into work. And if you actually cut it out of in school, because we all know love is natural, hate is taught. Mm-hmm. Love is natural, hate is taught is something that we all have just know that." Mm-hmm. Uh, we've all seen the videos of like two little kids like coming and hugging in the middle. Like we all know how 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 natural love is and hate and evil is taught. 
uh, and, and processed over a period of time is that there was this in the 1990s, there was like, hey, in the next 20 years, because the education system and because the schools are not, no longer segregated, because all of these things, in 20 years, the next generation that's coming out of this thing is going to be like completely like, oh, what are you talking about? That's not that's not even real, like you know. And then some of the comments I've been re- uh, reading, which is which further created more hope um, out there. I feel is like some of the best actor, top actors, uh, some of the best athletes in the world, some of the most influential people in the world. You talk about the president of the United States, like you know, the, there have been so many more advances made. Mm-hmm. Uh, to clearly see that oh it's not as bad or it's, it's or talked about as bad how do you how do you reconcile that how do you talk to people around that i think that we were naive in the 90s if we really believed that we were going to unseat a system um, of systemic racism that was built on a foundation of white supremacy that unequivocally from its from the, its inception literally did not recognize the full and total humanity of black people in America. Like imagine in history class in America, being, first of all, being one of the few black people. And then you get to the chapters or in my case chapter, right? About slavery, hearing the way the teacher who is white or not black and the students who are not black a lot of the time in my classrooms, hearing the way they talk about slavery and, you know, it's, it's lasting effects on, on the institutions uh, and social structure in America. And then feeling the way I feel when I see a picture of a black man hanging riddled with bullets and white men facing, smiling, posing with it. We're already not having the same experience. Mm. We're already not recognized that my mom who was born in 1961 was born before the civil rights movement. She was meaning that she was born into a world where people who looked like her could not vote. That's my mother. That's not that long ago. So that we would have thought by the nineties that we could have this stuff figured out. It's just crazy, especially when we weren't thinking about the root causes of this. We were ignore, and I say we to be nice. Folks in charge were not paying attention to the fact that what needed to happen is to unequivocally, not just disavow, but dismantle the system on which this country was built. People are reluctant to do that because the way that those stories were written and not by people who look like me, the way that those stories were written, there is such a level of heroism attached to what 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 was often brutality, genocide, But the way we talk about it in the history books is, look what we conquered, look what we built. And so that's in us. I'm up against that today in the conversations I'm having about the death of George Floyd. I'm hearing it in the way that people speak, that they still, they feel like when I tell them that this system is is built on a foundation of white supremacy and that what we're seeing are the effects of systemic racism, it feels like I'm taking something from them, right? That's the reaction. It's like, no, 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 no. That, that history is, is, is beautiful and wonderful. And, and how could you ever say anything bad about it? And it's like, look, these are the facts. And the only way that we actually become who we say we are in this country, who we say we are on the Statue of Liberty, uh, and, and you know, who we said we were in the Declaration of Independence, 
We only become that if we recognize that who we are now and who we've been since has simply not been good enough. It has simply not been complete. It has simply not been equally accessible across the board. Yeah. So Nikki, let's talk about things at work today. Mm -hmm. You're an incredibly successful woman who is doing really well. And, and I've been inspired by you. We have, again, like this is not the first conversation we're having, which right. is what, what makes me feel that, okay, this, like, I'm just missing this, the whole part of a person. I'm just, folk, I've been always focused on just that one, you know, whatever they are doing good. I've never been focused on the whole part of it. I'm realizing that is something that I need to learn mm-hmm. and, and know better. So thank you again for that. So what's happening today at work? And as I said in the beginning, yeah, my hope is like we go, we walk out of this conversation, not with sympathy, but empathy around it. And, and I went and looked at the definition of empathy and what it really means is like walking in somebody else's shoes. Mm-hmm. And that means that we all need to take responsibility, which is what I said, it's our duty. Like everyone out here is our duty to figure out and, and actually be part of the solution. So I'm coming to you now as like, just like you told me the other day, like last week, I asked Nikki, what should I do? And you told me like, this is what you should do. So I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm an action person. I'll go do this. What is, but, but I still feel like, man, I'm like miles away from actually doing anything of consequence at all. And, and that, that's, that's debilitating in, in a way. So I can only imagine how it feels for you to say mm-hmm. that, well, you know what, <laughs> you know, for 20 years and I'm here again and here, here's what we're going through. So help me and help everybody listening. And as I'm seeing comments and questions uh, coming through it is that what are your recommendations at work? What Mm -hmm. are your recommendations that will allow people to practically advance this thing? And you can go at any level that you want at the founder level, when it comes to hiring, you can go at like coworker level, the commentaries that people make and how that like, so just, just walk us through, just, just teach us. Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to I want to go back to something that you said, which is that you know I'm, I know this person, but there's this whole element of her that I haven't engaged with, and that you know is <laughs> that that idea. It's is completely fair, and I think that that's been the backdrop to a lot of microaggressions that I have experienced at work, which is what I wrote about yesterday, right? So folks may not realize it, but saying things like, oh, I don't care that you're black. It doesn't matter that you're black, but you're not really black. Or I've had someone say, you're just so smart and so nice that I forget that you're black. And listen, I don't believe for one second that these people knew what they were saying when they said those things to me or that they were trying to hurt me. But I do believe that there is a willful obliviousness to, you know, what the experience is of not just people of color, generally speaking, but particularly in America of the experience of black people. And I think it's because people understand what a burden that is that you take on once you really do start to, let yourself empathize with a lot of the the pain. Now it comes with a lot of fun stuff too. Like <laughs> it's my favorite thing, right? One of my favorite things is being a black woman in America. 
And so I don't I mean that's another thing I don't want to happen, right? Is it's just people feeling, oh, I'm sad for Nikki. It's she's she's just out here having the toughest time being black. And it's like, nah, it, it is also at the same time and to a greater degree, just such a source of of strength and empowerment for me and community. And it is the way I survive. But and it's what I have to hold on to when it comes to these microaggressions. So microaggressions, just for anybody who, you know, doesn't know exactly what that means. What my, my favorite way to describe it are comments and statements that remind the receiver of those comments and statements. Not just that they are different, but that you see that difference first when you interact with them. And more often than not, that there is some negative value that you assign to that difference. And for me, understanding that the negative value assigned to difference connects these microaggressions to things that I like to, that I talked about, like systemic racism and like, like, you know, systems of, of white supremacy, right? So it is those systems that support and embolden and enable people to be able to speak without thinking when they're expressing this kind of sentiment. So the statements that I wrote out, as far as what my experience was at, at work, and not at any one specific job, and not even over the last 10 years, that, that's the, the full breadth of where I was coming from with that. And it isn't just this, this instance of, oh, this person said these things and it hurt my feelings. It's being constantly reminded of not just the otherness, but the negative value associated with that otherness. And so then already not being put on an even playing field, right? There is a set of things, a set of responsibilities and considerations that you enter into any marketing role with, or that you enter into any sales role with. But when what's at stake also is that you will be, you will not be able to develop a healthy sense of belonging in these environments, then the hill is higher to climb. Yeah. And so that is, you know, I think a, a, a thing that most folks aren't acquainted with because what's happened is folks are quiet because we want to keep our jobs or we're quiet because we don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable. I mean, think about it. If someone's already, you know, pointing out that you're another, the last thing you want to do is then, you know, highlight more of that otherness by saying, Hey, because of my experience, as it differs from yours, these things that you've said have been inappropriate. And, and now that's a, that's a pre this era, Nikki type mm-hmm. thought, just to be clear at this point, I, I understand where I, I was flawed in that thinking. My silence contributed to, you know, the, these continued instances of, of, you know, being othered with impunity, right? Not these people not, you know, even having to face what they had done or said to me. And a lot of that has to do with the power structure. A lot of that has to do with the fact that there are in all of B2B right now, all of B2B business, 7% of the beauty tech, 7% of the population is black. There's just not enough period. And so you're talking about a really small pipeline then to feed into leadership. And so then the numbers, obviously the percentage gets smaller as you go up in, in, in title. And, and so it just sets folks up to, you know, accept this byproduct of a system that was never set up for our success. And then internalize that if we are not succeeding at, at scale, right, that the flaw must be in ourselves. Right. 
it, it, that is a, it's a constant fight with respect to that for a lot of people. And I'm seeing that one of the things, right. Of the, of the sort of three camps of people in my inbox here recently, which is white people wanting help or non-black people wanting help, which is fine. Folks just saying that something I, you know, other white people uh, disagreeing with me and then black people, particularly young black salespeople saying, Hey, you gave words and a voice to these experiences that I have been having you know, my entire career. And it's important to me to have someone um, visible who is doing that. And those are the people that keep me going. I mean, do I feel a a sense of duty to to put out, you know, information that I think is helpful for folks who are just looking to learn? Absolutely. But that is draining. So what, what ends up filling my cup is someone saying, hey, I needed to feel understood and validated in that moment and your words helped me do that. And this is not about aggrandizing myself. Yeah. Uh, I'm just saying that, y'all, I'm tired, but yeah. I, I'm in this fight for those people. Remember that when we, when we, before recording, I asked like, are you tired? And are you exhausted? Because I'm seeing that word and phrase out there. I and mean, you and you said that, hey, I'm tired of even using the word diversity as, as, as a thing. So, so like, let's get practical here. Like, let's talk about hiring managers right now. People who are hiring, what should they think about when you're there hiring? What, how can they make sure that they have a more inclusive team? Sure. So I think in, in B2B, hiring now, like, uh, to a large degree, takes place at the network level. Yeah. Right? So it's less, you know, going through a bunch of candidates who have applied than it is you know, sourcing candidates from your network. So if your network is not diverse, then it really kind of doesn't matter what your your company's diversity initiatives are because y'all aren't really using that anyway because that's not where your pipeline is. You're getting it from your networks. So open up your network. You know, if you notice, and I did this about a year ago, if you notice in your LinkedIn feed that the people that you're seeing tend to all come from a lot of the same backgrounds or that there is a certain set of backgrounds that are underrepresented, then you have to go out and find those people. Right. And, and I'm not just saying like scroll through LinkedIn and look for black faces. I'm saying find, you know, professional organizations built around these groups that you know are underrepresented. There are women, women in sales groups. There, there, there is not a very visible and public you know, black in sales group is something I've been working on and researching and building with uh, Morgan Day Ingram and Kevin Dorsey. But, you know, you only would have to ask me and I could point you to a bunch. Right. And there are organizations like Jopwell. Um, and there's another one for freelancers called Inclusion, where that is what they do. They, they've heard people say that there is some some pipeline problem. And they said, oh, OK, well, here's an entire group of people that have been pre-vetted for this set of creden- credentials for this industry. So I think you have to start with your network. I love that. Um, I had, I had asked the question on LinkedIn about a year ago, where are all the black women? And I was like, not in sales. Hmm. And, and then I was asking people in my network, like, Hey, why am I the only black person, black woman that I'm seeing in my sphere of influence? And then I had to come to the realization that that was kind of my fault, right? Like it's because they weren't in my network. And so then I went and did the research. There actually is a group called Sisters in Sales. They're very visible, um, run by a woman named Chantel George, who works at, at LinkedIn. 
And just I enter this this community, this black community, this group, and I, there's all these other black women who are doing sales just like me. And yeah, maybe many of them, you know, are themselves one of the only or, or one of few black people at their organizations. But once we get together and we start to realize that we're facing a lot of the same things, we're achieving a lot of the same things, um, then it's another a source of, of strength. And it just makes it a lot more difficult to settle for this. Well, they weren't in my pipeline or they just didn't apply for the role when I'm in a group that's over 500 strong of black women who are salespeople. And then beyond that, with respect to microaggressions and how we how we address the, the belonging piece as it differs from the diversity piece, I think there need to be installed at the training and onboarding level resources that address these issues directly and take a no nonsense, zero tolerance stance on these things. And that we don't say simply that, oh, we're anti-racist. I feel like most thinking people in the world are anti-racist. But what we do have to say is that we are conscious of how the things that we do and say with respect to people's identities and the groups that they feel attached to or a sense of belonging to, how those things affect those people's sense of belonging in this environment. And if we say that we want everyone here to feel a sense of belonging, then there's just no room for you to look over to Nikki and say, that's so ghetto. There's no way you believe that that enhances my sense of belonging. Um, But some people, even within that, might not understand how, why that's harmful. And so that's when I talk about sourcing, um, uh, I'm sorry, creating a resource around it. So imagine you're going through your training modules and one of them is, here's how you use a CRM. You know, here's how you set up your healthcare benefits. And one, another one of them is, uh, you could label it, this is around, you know, behavior and, and professional speech within the organization. And then you include in that an explainer video and they exist already on, on the internet. I searched all over Al Gore's internet and the YouTubes and I found it. And so it's there. if, you know, there are these videos and it shows people having these interactions and it doesn't call anybody out directly, but it just shows people have these interactions. And so you can sit there and think to yourself while you're in Lessonly doing your modules yeah. and be like, oh, I said that, that thing before. I didn't know it was harmful, but apparently either. I understand it's not, it's, it, it can be harmful, so I won't say it, or my job is saying that it's not acceptable in this environment, so I won't say it. And so that's, those are just a couple of the ways to address this thing. So your network, organizations that are already out there that specialize in this sort of thing, and creating training and onboarding resources from the beginning and setting the standard unambiguously that these types of things are not tolerated. That's great, Nikki. And I'm going to add, because I'm ask, people are asking, like, can you link to these resources? So this will be on the podcast. So I'll make sure it's linked as well. But Nikki, I might follow up with you on getting specific links. And as well as, as I'm researching, I'm, I'm going to start putting resources around that because we as an organization need to learn and do that. So this will be helpful. Um, you probably enjoyed this comment from Lori. You know, oh, Lori, you know, Lori. Uh, she, uh, she's been watching this as well as Amy. The, Here's, here's a question from Amy, uh, Amy Balog, uh, great friend. Uh, what would Nikki share is important for leaders to do now at their companies? A couple of things. Do the work yourself. Do not ask your one or three black employees to do that. I'm seeing this a lot. I don't say this to be mm-hmm. funny or to be mean. 
a lot of friends have reached out to me like my I've never had a conversation with my CEO or my CMO and now they're reaching out and asking me to help put together a program. That's not fair. DE&I is a whole industry that people get paid money to do as professionals and it requires training and expertise. And my being black does not predispose me to such training and expertise. And so, especially when you're talking to folks who are already in pain and exhaustion and, and, you know, rage in some cases about the state of things for you to then go to them and be like, Hey, how do I, how how must we be able to put this together? It's just not fair. Hire like you would do with any other really with any other part of your business you were trying to improve that you didn't have the in-house expertise for, just treat it like that. So it's, it's almost like acting. That's funny because it's funny you say that because it's like, you know, if your sales team is not doing well and you need, and you realize that you need help, you would go and hire a sales leader and, and have them come in and do a training so that your sales team becomes a better sales team. That's like, that's a standard practice across organizations. So why this should be any different than that. Right. Exactly that. And then there are things like, you know, giving your, like making sure that your team understands that they have the the right and are encouraged to to form ERGs, employee resource groups, which if you've only got one black person on your team, then they're a group unto themselves. So then you've got to start figuring out why that's the case. And that just goes back to, widening your your network and and you know fixing the diversity in numbers part first beyond that just being from the top down super unambiguous um, and clear as to where you stand on these matters without being afraid that you'll say something wrong you just have to be clear because what i want people to understand is there are aspects of this this fight and i am in a fight there are aspects of this fight that we will not all agree on, and that is not required. I don't agree with my mother about whether or not protests should be should turn into riots ever or should just be peaceful. I fall firmly on the side of riots in case anyone is wondering, but we don't agree about that, but we do agree that black lives matter. We do agree that there hasn't been enough pro- progress, and we do agree that to treat our nuances on this subject as secondary and prioritize vanquishing the big bad over everything else is the only way that we're going to make any significant headway in this thing. And so I would encourage folks when they're figuring out not just their external messaging, but their internal messaging on this, understand that if, if there is some aspect of this that you feel like you can't get behind or don't believe in, then just simply don't talk about that aspect. Talk about what's real. Do you oppose anti-black sentiment? Okay, so say that, you know, um, and and that's just where it's got to come from. It's got to be genuine. Yeah, I'm 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 still rackling with the point of like, and I think I think as as a co-founder of a company, we're about 250 people. I'm realizing this, and tomorrow I'm bringing in Tanisha, who works at Terminus. And she has expressed concern. I'm like, well, let's just talk about this live and, and not just in just a silo because we're learning through this and it is not on all on you to fix it and figure it out how to do it and and make XYZ person a chair of that because there are things that are already available for us to start taking. I think is it? it's literally that there is a lack of investment yes. in this area at a leadership level. This is not yes. even in the top five. 
priorities of the org- most organizations, I would say not not ours right now. And and, and I think it has, and because of this, has it started to become one. But I would say that is one of the biggest challenges that I'm seeing right now. It's not even a priority or a, on a list of priorities to, to even make it to the top five. Yeah, I was talking to some folks in my network who have recently maybe been you know, applying for, you know, executive level leadership. And we talked about how often they had been asked about how successful they've been at building diverse team, mm. right? Which I think is a core metric on which leaders should be measured. But most of these folks had never even been asked that question. Yeah. So we're not treating it like it is a disqualifying factor. If you want to say be, be a VP of sales, that you either have some experience or some goal around building a diverse team. You could go through, get through an entire process and, and get an offer at the leadership level and not have to prove that this is even something that you care about. That's a problem. Agreed. All right. So we're going to wrap it up here, but I wanted you to, Nikki, to see some of, uh, some of the comments that have come in uh, from Lori around like, do the work yourself. Uh, from from Douglas, yes, I feel awful that the one single point of contact being the export resource. We uh, we have Teresa who talked about like you know agreeing with the Amy Baylock's comments around this thing. So Amber Khan uh, who's talking about the willful obliviousness, which which I believe that that definitely exists. So it's all up to all of us to learn from it. So I want to personally again thank you for being here because I recognize how hard and exhausting and it could be it's like well why am I supposed to teach you why don't you guys figure it out yourself and I get it and I hear you um, and I appreciate you spending the time to share all that Nikki because that's uh, at a minimum learning is on all of us and this is one way we're learning right now because right now everyone's attention is here right now and let's not let's not make it as another date or a history lesson let's actually take action so that's for me uh, as well um, and for everybody listening, we're doing this every day. Uh, tomorrow, as I said, we're going to have Tanisha uh, coming in uh, from Terminus. Uh, after that, Morgan. After that, uh, Kwame and Reggie. And the reason, again, I'm trying to really take this week as to a, a as my duty as a founder of an organization and having some amount, some amount of regional influence around hiring um, at my own company or other companies is like, well, I better get behind this and I don't want to go back and ever say that, well, during this time to my children and my grandchildren, I want to be able to say that here's what I did. Mm -hmm. This is what I did. And if I didn't do that, then I don't think I can face them um, the right way. So Nikki, again, thank you so much for your time. Love you. Thank you, Sangha. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.